Good morning again. And we, as if you know, if you were here last last week, you know that we are in the second week of a a four-week sermon, a month-long sermon series on what we're calling Life Together. So why are we all sitting here? Well, because God has done something wonderful for us in Christ. He's called us a people. He's called us to himself through the person and the work of Jesus Christ for us. What should that look like together in our life and where we're called to be here in the Galleria? And how should the Galleria look different? How could it look different? It's like a vision series. We want to probably do at least for the foreseeable future, a sort of vision, a four-week vision series every, every year around this time, around the fall. So this is week two in that Life Together series. We're calling it Life Together, okay? What does it look like to live together? Why are we a people of God, and how, how should we live? This week is Together as Family. So you could, as you can see from the text Nathaniel read, um, Paul here to the church in Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey, is laying out what God has done for us and how he's made us a family through the work of Jesus Christ. So we're going to look into that today. Um, I think that, you know, when we think about family, I back up and I think about not only family, but just how our families are fractured, but how our entire society and almost every aspect of our society is fractured. I just think of deep divisions. Divisions... That, are, uh, that permeate wider and that go deeper than they have certainly in my, since any time in my lifetime in this country. I think of um, political divisions, class divisions, race, racial uh, divisions between the sexes, sexual orientation. We are just, we are divided and fragmented um, and certainly familial. There's so much fractured family and family division in our society. And I think that, and so we're talking about family and how God makes people from different stripes in all these ways a family through the work of Christ. But I think that as I thought about it this week, even more deeply, this text and the truth of what Christ has done for us is even more deeply about identity. Um, Who am I? What gives me worth? Why am I here? What should I be living for? Is there something after death? Security, identity. Um, you know, humans excel on asking that question, who am I? It doesn't sound strange when I say that. We've all asked that, at least to ourselves. Squirrels don't ask that question. Squirrels, you, you, I mean, as far as I know, I haven't, I haven't, I'm not a squirrel researcher. But I don't think squirrels or deer or trees, pretty sure trees don't, ask the question, who am I? They, they know, and they know what to do, and they just do it. They eat the acorn, they climb the tree, they annoy me, and make me want to shoot them with my pellet gun because they eat wires in my attic. Okay, that's off script. Let's, let's get back. Um, angels, demons, they don't ask this question, but humanity, there's something in us that's been broken to the degree that we don't know who we are. We have to find that. It's about identity. Um, you th- I think of Derek, sort of on a less serious note, Derek Zoolander in the original Zoolander. I hope none of you saw the second one. I didn't. I, I heard it was terrible. Wasn't there a second one? Yes. Zoolander. <laughs> you know that phrase, that scene, who am I? Um, but it's a serious, it's the most serious, one of the most serious questions. One of the most serious questions that, uh, and I think that we don't know who we are as a society anymore as a people Largely in the West, we've lost that rooted identity that never changes, that is rooted ultimately in who God has made us to be and, and allowed us to be that again in Christ. 
And so I think that these deep divisions and this fear and this rage that we see exploding in our society is because we don't know who we are anymore. Um, Shia LaBeouf, am I pronouncing it right? Shia LaBeouf? I mispronounced it this morning. He's a, no longer a child actor. He's a young, a young man, sort of, and uh, I guess probably early 30s now. And he was, at one point in his career, probably not anymore, but compared to, he's the next Tom Hanks, um, but he's a famous actor with a strange and fantastic name. And he said this. He said, this was, anyway, this was a while ago. He said, I don't handle fame well. Most actors on most days don't think they're worthy. I have no idea where this insecurity comes from, but it's a God-sized hole. This is, apparently he had a conversion experience on a movie set. I don't know if it was, if he's a new creation in Christ or if it was just something that didn't take, but this was definitely prior to that. So this is a guy that doesn't know God saying himself. This is a direct quote. It's a God-sized hole in me. I, if I knew, I'd fill it, and I'd be on my way. When he's feeling insecure, the article says that I was reading, he sometimes stops his bike, this is so interesting, on the side of a, his motorbike, okay, on the side of a busy road to see if people passing by recognize him. He is scared that they won't. That is so telling. He's scared to death that people driving past will not recognize who this guy is. He's, it's an identity crisis. Who am I? Am I worth anything? If I dig down deep enough, I know that I am, but I've done so much that makes me unworthy. We have this conflict going on. We're scared to death. We want desperately to be known, but then that's our deepest fear, too. If they really know who I am, then I won't be loved, and we want to be known and loved for who we are. Um, and we want to love in return. We want to be fully alive, and I would add to that something that I'll develop later. We want to be fully alive, which means being fully human. So this text takes us to the hot core of that this morning. So let's, let's dive in. First, before we dive into the solution, we need to look at the problem a little more closely. So four points, if you like points, we got on this morning. First is that the law enslaves. And I'm not going to list them out. I'm just going to tell you the first and, and dive in, okay? The law enslaves. It's something that Paul talks about at the beginning of the text, as Anna read in, in Galatians 3.23. I might as well read it right now. He says, now before faith came, Galatians, Galatians 3.23, now before faith came, he's talking about faith in Christ, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Martin Luther, the reformer, lived 500 years ago, he says this. He says, the principal point of the law, get this, the principal point of the law in divinity is to make men not better, but worse. The principal point of the law in divinity is to make men not better, but worse. Okay, what does Luther mean? Well, the law, one of its intended effects by God is to make us feel worse because it shows us that we're worse. When it shows us this is what, this is God's holy word, his law, this is what he's like, this is how, what he expects of us, and we can't live up to it. If we're honest at all, we should realize, okay, I'm, I fall so short of that standard. The law is there in part to help us understand our true estate. We stand guilty before God. So in this way, as Paul says, and as Luther says, the law is a, is a jail. It imprisons us, or a jailer. It puts us in prison. 
Um, one commentator said, God never gave the law so that people could merit blessing by obedience to its demands. Rather, and I'm not saying that if you obey the law, there aren't blessings. There clearly are. But in toto, okay, it was never given so that we could obey it all and be blessed. Rather, God gave the Jews a special revelation about who he was, and here's how I want you to live as a people to put them in prison, Paul's telling us, which is strange to kind of hear. It's sort of a blunt, abrupt way of putting it. But this was for their good, and it's for our good. Okay, We were never meant to think God's promises of life and freedom could come through our obedience to the law. The proof of that, Paul says, in a lot of different places, in much broader language, longer language rather, the proof of that is that God gave the promises of life and salvation and blessing to Abraham, who lived 400 years before the law was ever given. Okay? And that's one thing Paul waxes eloquent about through Galatians and Romans and other places. Luther again, Martin Luther. The law is also a spiritual prison of very hell. You think Luther and the law had a good relationship? <laughs> it's, pr- it's, it's a historical fact that they did not. So what does Luther mean? The law shows us that we've offended God personally. One of the things that the prophets do, and the prophets sort of expound on the law and show us, here's how our breaking God's word makes him feel. The prophets are sort of an in- internalization of all the external histories that come before them. Genesis through 2 Kings is the history. The prophets don't give you more history. They just deep dive into God's heart. And Hosea, the book of Hosea, is completely committed to one idea. He asks his prophet, he tells his prophet, go marry a prostitute. And then he says, just as a picture of how I feel when my people disobey me and run and go search after other gods. I feel like you're my wife and you are just going and giving yourself to other lovers. It's, God takes it personally. Um, so the law shows us that we've offended God personally and have earned death and hell Luther goes on to talk about how once we realize this we can't shake once we understand that we can't shake off this feeling that the law has put us in these shackles we, there's a sense in which we stop trying to just do it all and to clean ourselves up um, we, we lose sleep over it. Luther did. Like I said, it's historically documented that he would, before he saw the light of the gospel as he was teaching through the book of Romans, he would torment himself as a monk. He was a monk. And he would torment himself in his monkish, in his monk cell trying to get clean by confess. He would stay up all night or a huge part of nights. And his fellow monks would hear him in his little cell confessing out loud, crying out to God. He would try to itemize everything he'd done wrong and he would confess every single thing to try to get clean, to try to get them off. But he realized, as he was honest with himself, that he just would plunge farther and farther into despair as he did that because you could never remember everything. You could never confess it all. When you did, there was just going to be more in the future. And that, how can me just confessing it get rid of the offense that I've already committed? So the law became a prison to Luther. We know deep down that we are lawbreakers. When I see police lights uh, or hear a, si- a siren behind me, my heart always jumps. And I know you can relate to that. Because deep down, and, and there are other reasons, right? Yeah, but I mean, even when it's an ambulance, you know, 
But especially when it's a police officer, and I, and I see that it is in my rear view, my heart always jumps because I deep down I know that I'm a lawbreaker. And often, I am breaking the law right then. I'm, I'm almost always speeding, even if it's a couple miles an hour over. Right? We don't have secure, a police security here yet, but we're going to soon. But, so I won't say that perhaps up here once we have a cop in here. But, um, but I'm always, almost always doing, I'm, I'm, I'm committing some infraction of some law. And I know that. I know that I'm guilty. And the lights and the siren provoke that understanding that I so assiduously try to cover up and bury. But it goes deeper than law-breaking which all of us, if we're honest, know we do. If we're honest, we know that deep down something is deeply wrong with us and we're lawbreakers because we're broken. There's something integral in us that's broken on the inside. Tom Hanks, he was being interviewed recently in a podcast that I love, and he said this amazing thing. He said, you know, it's terrifying to be an actor because you have to have the stuff or, or drum up the stuff every day before you go on set. And it's terrifying because he says, I know I'm a fraud, and every day I have to go convince people that I'm not a fraud. And the terrifying thing is that I feel like one, at some point I'm not going to convince them well enough and the jig's going to be up, as my granddad used to say. And people are going to realize, oh, he's not who he's trying to play as, as being. He's, he's, that's the real Tom. He's actually a fraud. And I was amazed to hear Tom Hanks say that because he's Tom Hanks. You know, he, he's the greatest. I mean, he's, first of all, he's a famous actor, but secondly, he's like the best actor. And he's such a nice guy. And nobody wants him to die, which is why they picked him apparently for Apollo 13, because if you send Tom Hanks to the moon, man, you can't leave him there. Like, you've got to get him back, because nobody wants, if it was Kevin Bacon, just leave him, you know? <laughs> I love Bacon. I mean, I'm a child of the 80s, but come on. Leave him and his hair up there. But uh, no, uh, Tom Hanks, he's got to come back. You just love Tom Hanks, and he's such a great guy, and he's so engaging, and he's overcome so much. And Anyway. But he, even he says, look, I know I'm a fraud, and I'm desperate that nobody else finds that out. And it's so resonated with me. We know deep down that we're fraudulent, that we're fakes, and that there's something, there's something really wrong and broken. If you are feeling bowed down under the weight of your sin, or even by what I'm talking about now, Paul is saying here, Luther is saying, I am saying, that you're not in a bad, in a very bad place. You are very close to a very good place. The law is supposed, it was designed by God to take you to this place, to the place where you feel like I'm in a prison, I can't get myself out. That is the only place where you can look up and see I need a Savior and to cry out to God. And God has provided a Savior for us in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what the law is designed to do is to get us ready for Jesus. It's to get us ready for Jesus Christ. Um, we cannot come to Jesus and be justified by faith in him until we see our sin and our helplessness to conquer it or to remove it. The law helps fulfill that purpose for us. It so prepares us for Christ, for faith in Christ, okay, in this way. God's plan A is despair brought about by a true understanding of the law which leads us to hope in Jesus Christ. This is what Paul's saying here. Um, another way of saying that is that the way God's chosen to bring us to Christ is to first bring us to despair, to despairing of any power to save ourselves, to make ourselves acceptable in God's sight, to lay hold of his promises for life, for peace, for satisfaction. The law helps us get there. It leads us to despair. This is its function. 
The covenant of law and the covenant of faith were therefore not contradictory, but complementary. The law was always meant to lead us. Get this. The law was always meant to lead us in chains to Christ. The chain breaker. So that's, that's the law as, as, um, a, as a prison. Let's look at the fullness of time, point two. Let's look at the fullness of time. This really takes us to all of chapter four that we read, four, one through seven. Paul talks about, but in the fullness of time, God sent his son. After he had enslaved his people by giving them the law, they were ready. So he talks about this fullness of time. Let's look at that phrase. The Jews were given the law, and they, Paul says they were like a child that has a big inheritance, but basically he hasn't come into that inheritance yet, so he's not enjoying it. He is the inheritor, but it's not time yet for him to have it, and so he basically is treated just like a slave. That's what those with the law before Christ came were like. They were coming into the inheritance, but they weren't enjoying any of it yet. They were enslaved under the law. And Jesus, when he came, he allowed them and anyone that would trust in him, Jew or Gentile alike, Paul says, to cash in, as it were, on the inheritance that God has given his people. On 4 verse 3, John Stott, famous British preacher, said this, 4 verse 3, he says, but how can a bondage to the law be called a bondage to evil spirits? Looking at that elementary principles of the world that Paul talks about. Is Paul suggesting that the law was an evil design of Satan? Of course not. He's told us that the law was given to Moses by God, not Satan. So the law is good, right? And it's been mediated through angels. Good spirits, not bad. What Paul means is that the devil took this thing, the law, and he twisted it to his own evil purpose in order to enslave men and women. Stott goes on. God intended the law to reveal sin and to drive men to Christ. Satan uses it to reveal sin and to drive men to despair. God meant the law as an interim step to man's justification. Satan uses it as the final step to his condemnation. And then verse 4. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son Jesus Christ. Man's bondage to the law lasted under that law until Christ came for about 1,300 years. So over a millennium. Stott says it was a long and arduous minority. But at last, the fullness of time arrived. Mark 1.15. The date set by the Father when the children should attain their majority to be freed from their guardians and inherit the promise. So why is this period of Christ's coming called the fullness of time? So there are a few factors that, that make it so, that make it a full time, the right time for God to send Jesus after this long period of the law enslaving God's people. For instance, um, it was the fullness of time, because Rome had conquered, at this point, the known world, the Mediterranean world, where the gospel where Jesus appeared. And it had provided a system of laws and roads and order that would facilitate the outgoing of the gospel to the known world. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, a favorite author of mine, talks about this. Um, also, as it relates to the Punic Wars, which is a war between Rome and Carthage in North Africa, and just talks about how, what if Carthage had won? the whole Mediterranean would have looked quite, quite different. But God in his providence allowed Rome to win, in part to prepare, as a preparatorio evangelicus, to prepare the world for the coming of Jesus Christ. So partly it was, it was Rome and the order that Rome provided, but also it was the Hellenization of that same area. So the, the Hellenization being the fact that Greek language and culture 
we're providing a common culture and a common language for that area so that the whole New Testament about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, about how the church should live in response to that, was written in Greek, and people could understand it. It was the language that everybody understood, the language of commerce. Um, also, the old, at this time, the old mythological gods of Greece and Rome were losing their shine with the common people. They were losing their, 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 ho- their um, hold on the hearts and the minds of the people. So the people were ready for something. And also, the Jews were just tired. They were tired. They were borne down under the weight of the law and ready for Messiah. So verses 4 and 5, In light of this, when the time had fully come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Born under the law. I just want to touch on that. Luther again, Martin Luther, he's featuring big time in this. His Galatians commentary is pretty seminal. So that's my excuse. Martin Luther said, Therefore Jesus, okay, he, therefore Jesus owed nothing to the law. He was born under it, but he, he owed nothing to it, right? He didn't need to be born under it. So why was he? Why did he subject himself to all its demands, its positive commands, its prohibitions, keeping them perfectly, not just externally, but Jesus kept the law perfectly, what? From the heart. Love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, soul, mind, strength. The end of the Ten Commandments, the last commandment that kind of sum up the rest of the law, 600 plus laws given after that. What is the the last of the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not covet. A lot of them are external, but the 10th one is sort of a commentary on all of them, which start out by saying, don't have any other gods. In other words, love me with all of who you are. And the last commandment says, don't covet. It's an internal, it's a heart issue. Nobody can tell if I'm coveting. What does that mean? It means that in everything, God doesn't just care about the externals. He cares about this. In everything, Christ obeyed the Father from the heart. All the prohibitions, all the things to do, why did he subject himself to this? Well, because he didn't need to be, but we did, and we had broken the law. And so in our place, as our representative, he subjected himself to the law. Um, so we are saved. One of my old professors would start his classes this way sometimes. We are saved by obedience to the law, true or false. Or another way to say it, we are saved by works, true or false. And, you know, the Sunday school class would inevitably answer no. And the answer is yes. We are saved by obedience to the law. Perfect obedience. We are saved by works. Perfectly acceptable works to God the Father. Jesus' works. Jesus' obedience in our place, for us, as our representative. He did what we could not do. As the second Adam, Adam broke the law. As the true Israel, Israel broke the law. Jesus came and he fulfilled it. So faith attaches us to him. As we sang in all these songs this morning, it claims his record on our behalf so that the promises that God gave to Adam and then to Israel, which, he, which Jesus won, we win. The promises of, of land and of life and of blessedness and of peace and of fear, no fear of death anymore and of total conquest and of having the love of God and being brought up into that love. He took what we deserve and he gave us his record of law-keeping. Luther calls this the great exchange. Um, what will the devil, therefore, knowing this truth, what will the devil try to do with the law? He'll do lots of things, but two in particular. He's going to try to keep you focused on doing 
the law to get right with God, on doing everything that your conscience and the law tell you to do, not just because they're good and they please God, no, but because to get right, to get yourself in a right place with God. That's not how it works, Paul says. Jesus has done that for you. If you trust in him, he puts you in that right place, his place with God. And then Satan's also going to keep you from believing that Jesus has done that for you as a corollary. So what does this mean practically? How might it look? You're going to feel guilty a lot, like God isn't pleased with you, lower than a snake's belly, okay? Um, it's going to look like you're trying to be good to measure up and to feel really proud about it if you feel like you're keeping the law. Um, it's going to look like you giving up, perhaps, and binging on sin because what's the use? I've broken so many laws anyway. And I just want to say, stop. Why would God have come himself in the person of his dear son and died on a Roman cross and endured hell and the wrath of God if you could attain your own salvation by law-keeping? If you, could, if you could measure up to God and be pleasing in his sight in any way, why would he have come and done that? He wouldn't have. He would not have done that, but he did. And so what that means is that he is the only way to the Father, and he is a totally sufficient way to the Father. So stop trying and come feed on him. Come to him by faith. Thirdly, Jesus justifies. If you look at 3.24 and 25, just these amazing verses about how we are justified who place our faith in Jesus Christ. So in short, I just want to say, this is, there's so much, I mean, books, uh, reformations have been based on this. Books have been written about it. Libraries. Justification is a legal term. It's a forensic term. It's a status term. It means not that when we're justified by faith in Christ Jesus and what he's done and who he is, it's not that we are actually made better. It's that God considers us as righteous. He moves us in status from being slaves under the law into Satan and death and hell to being sons. Why? Because he places the status of Jesus Christ as we trust in Jesus onto us. And he considers us as righteous. He reckons it to us. It doesn't mean that we're actually made righteous. Martin Luther had a phrase, simul justus et peccator in Latin. Simultaneously just, simultaneously perfect before the Father, just like Jesus, and yet peccator, sinner. Your status is totally changed. You will never, ever, when you trust in Christ, ever again be considered anything but completely just, righteous, and justified. The New Geneva Study Bible says, justification is God's act of pardoning sinners and accepting them as righteous for Christ's sake. But that's not, justification is just one aspect of a total salvation we're given, right? It's not the crown jewel of the Christian life. It's one thing God does for us. He considers us righteous. We're also actually made righteous. That's called sanctification. We're actually also, that process is actually also finished. Not, this, not in this life, but in the next. When we die and go to be with him and see him face to face, he will glorify us. He will make us truly as he is in who we are. So there's justification, there's sanctification, there's glorification, and all these Christ is one for us. They're all part of the salvation that he gives. But, and this is the last point, all those are means to an end. They're all wonderful, but they're not the end of the Christian life. This status, this becoming righteous. Um, the end of the Christian life is that we are made, and here's the point of the sermon. Uh-huh. We're made family. Adoption. We are adopted by the work and person of Christ into the family of God. Jesus makes us sons. Verses 26 through 29. Adoption has been called the crown jewel of the Christian life. 
Are we cleansed in Christ? Yes, thank God. Are we forgiven? Absolutely. Are we given his righteousness? Yes. Are we changed by it? Yes. Are we justified in him? Yes, yes, and yes. But are these things ends? Are they the end for which Christ saved us? Paul says no. A thousand times no. They are means to one thing. Sonship or daughterhood. To knowing God intimately as a wonderful father knows a son or a daughter. And as a wonderful son, son or daughter, as a, as, a, as a son or daughter, forgiven and pardoned and free, knows their father and takes absolute liberty with them. To jump up in their lap, to hug them, to get to know them, to have them make breakfast for them. God doesn't make breakfast for me, but he provides it every morning. And I know that one day we'll actually feast together. This is what God has made us for. For everything that his son was privy to before the foundations of the world, we are privy to now in Christ. Tasting a bit of it now, but tasting it fully when he comes again and makes all things new. So adoption is the crown jewel of the Christian life. J.I. Packer says this. He says, the degree to which you understand Christianity is the degree to which you understand the fatherhood of God. Salvation is not about getting to heaven. Okay, this is me. Salvation is not about, okay, does it include getting to heaven? Yes. Does it include the new heavens and the new earth? Yes. It's not even about a place or even a blessed state ultimately. It's most fundamentally about a relationship. About being moved from a place where we were enemies of God, where we were breaking his heart, idolatrous, harlot, What's the adjective of harlotous? Harlotous? I don't know. To a place where we are completely accepted, completely brought in, completely pardoned, completely free, completely clean, and accepted and loved by the Father. Um, It taps into the uncreated. You know, the only uncreated thing that's always been is what? God, the Trinity. And the Trinity is a family. It's Father, He's Son. And he's spirit. The Trinity enjoys life in itself, relationship, interpersonal communication and joy and a fullness of being. And what salvation is, is being brought into that. That's salvation. Being, as Lewis, as C.S. Lewis, you know he's going to feature. As C.S. Lewis says at the end of his mere Christianity radio addresses, he says that, Actually, being saved means becoming more of a person, becoming more human. Because as we get to know God, who is multi-personal, we truly find out who we are created to be. So we're moving along a continuum of from death to life to being made more and more persons with personalities and distinctions and quirks and traits, but also all the while looking like Jesus being brought into his body together. Um, So our salvation taps into Trinity as family, and we're brought into that family, and we're made a family as we're saved to rejoice in that life of God together. We're not supposed to do that individually. It taps in, this, this really tap, this answer taps into the problem I started with, the basic dysfunctions at the heart of our society, all these divides. But Paul here in 326 through 29 in this passage says, but you have been made family, sons and daughters, part of the body of Jesus Christ. Um, and that really hits on our identity, who we are in Christ. Um, in Christ, we have come into our inheritance as sons. Verse 28, those things that identified you, that Paul mentions, race, religion, class, sex, 
Um, They no longer do. Why? Something more powerful eclipses them. Christ. You're one with him. You've died with him if you've trusted in him. You live in him now and with him. And you reign with him. And your family, uh, you're a son or daughter of God the Father with him. And this, this this should trump everything. It shouldn't obviate those real distinctions. It shouldn't get rid of them, but it should trump everything. It should be what we hook our identity into. Like I said, it doesn't destroy distinction. One commentator says, Paul does not obliterate differences. The Greeks are still Greek. Slaves are still slaves. Females are still females. What are obliterated are the barriers formed by these differences and the relative value and status among the people of God based on these differences. There's a greater allegiance everyone who looks to Christ shares than any of those things that we clung to first. Any of the other reasons that we pulled off on the side of the road and desperately hoped somebody would notice me. What am I identified as? Actor, talented, whatever, hard worker, rich. I don't know. There are a million things. Um, Funny. Funny looking. Um, But there's a greater allegiance that we share. We're called, all of us are called by Christ into the same family. Okay, we're all deeply loved, perfectly loved, and we're all therefore called to love one another with that love. All made part of his body. So all brought into the same body, into the same family, but without distinctions destroyed. So that body still has a finger and a shin and an ear and a heart. And, and those distinctions remain, and distinctions and diversity are part of the beauty of anything. And thank God that we have them. So... Um, that's that. Okay, now let me, with the last few minutes I have here, let me just unpack, let me just give, let me apply. Let me give a few ways that this might, think, ways this might look as being, sharing life together as a family because of the work of Christ and what he's done in breaking down divides and ways that, things that used to distinguish us and things we used to hook our identity into, okay? The first one I just want to call fridge privileges. It should mean that we have fridge privileges with one another. What do I mean by that? Um, you know what I mean by that, don't you? Come, you're welcome to my fridge anytime, brother. So fridge privileges, right? Family has fridge privileges. Family, if you're family, it means that you can go into your family's fridge and open it up at any time and take anything out you want and eat it or drink it. You don't have to ask. That's one way I know that somebody doesn't understand that they're family is if, they, if they're a brother or sister in Christ and they come or they're an honored guest or a friend and they come and they say, well, they say, they say can, I, can I open that fridge up? Can I get something out? It's like, bro. Mikasa Sukasa. Come on. Have at it. Um, yesterday, we had my two-year-old daughter's two-year, two-year birthday party, and Michelle had asked my mom, apparently, if she could come along, and we hadn't explicitly invited her, but I've told her a hundred times, Michelle, don't, invi- don't ask. Just come. You're family. And so, um, and I told her, out. she's in kids this morning. I told her I was going to mention her. So, hi, Michelle, if you're watching. Um, <coughs> But man, if she really, I'll know that she really truly believes that, that she is family. It's not an ideal, it's a divine reality made so by Christ when she stops asking and just starts showing up. We had a couple also serving in kids this morning to our house on Friday for dinner, told them the same thing. We're like, this is great, but we've been trying to do this for two months, and it's just not happening. Like, we're, we're on one of your ways home from work, just pop by. And we've told other, others of you that. Like, come by, if you're a covenant member, or even if you're not, Okay. But if you're a covenant member and you, or you're a believer, you are truly existentially my family. Okay? And here's the thing. Robin might get mad at this, but I'm throwing down. 
all right? We were always losing keys, so I made eight or ten keys at Home Depot uh, about three months ago. We're down to like three, okay? So I need to go make another, get a bag full of keys and bring them home. Um, you, the only reason I will not throw out keys right now into the congregation is because, one, I don't have them, but two, they're $1.86 a piece. You can get them at Home Depot. If you want a key to my house and you're a covenant member, hang on, John Ding's like, <laughs> Yeah, John's like, I got one. John really does have one. So does Michael. See? See? If you want to keep to my house and you're a covenant member, haha, there's a stipulation. I will gladly, as long as you pay for the key, I will give you, you can have a key to my house. Why? You have fridge privileges. That's really a huge part of what parish family, life together in these parishes, the smaller version of the church's family, meeting throughout the week to share a meal and to pray and to live life together. That's really a huge part of what that means. Washing machine. We have a lot, a, f- a few people who come through our house to use our washing machine, and we don't feel used because family doesn't feel used when you. It's just part of life. Bring your dirty laundry, metaphorically and literally. <laughs> That's another thing we should be doing. We should be talking dirty laundry. We should be working things out together, annoying each other, but not bolting, because families don't bolt. Healthy families, they stick and they work things out, and things might get rocky but you're committed to each other. And the no, there's no way, there's no way things are going to get better when, they, when they're bad if you just bolt and go find another happy, smiley, shiny people. That's not, that's not the way it works. You've got to stick, and then we can work through things. That's family. Um, I'm going to skip roots, but roots are good. It's shown, um, okay, five seconds. It's shown when you transplant a tree whose root systems often grow three to four times as far out as the tree goes up. When you transplant a tree, you have to cut that root system, almost all of it. And for it to get back to the place when you replant it that it was before takes decades. So as family, we're about roots. We're about rooting. We're about staying. If God's called you here to this people, not finding the people that's most convenient for you, but rooting and committing and staying. But also, I want to say on the backside of that, we're not just calling you to root and like stay no matter what. We're also calling you as family, we should be like arrows. The Proverbs say that, um, that children are an inheritance from the Lord, and they're like arrows in, in a quiver. A, a quiver, a, you know, a bunch of sons and daughters is like a quiver full of arrows. And what, what does that mean? Arrows are made to be drawn back and released. A good set of parents will nurture and educate and discipline and love their children so that they can draw them back eventually and release them into the world to be soldiers of Christ, sons and daughters, light and salt in this world. And that's what you are. We gather to scatter. So also, as often as we are fellowshipping together and being family and working through stuff and having fridge privileges and getting a key to my house, all right, we should also be releasing one another, sending one another, expecting that we should be multiplying parishes and saying gospel goodbyes. And planting churches eventually, planting more churches, sending out beloved, some of you I'm looking at will probably go and plant in other areas in the Galleria or contiguous to this, God willing. That's, that's our model because we are a people that are on mission and not just committed to one another, but ultimately our allegiance is to the Lord and we're on mission to build his kingdom. And that's plan A. There is no plan B for the furtherance of Christ's kingdom on this earth until he comes again. It's the church. So we are to be advancing as arrows. And literally, 
just boom, 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 a few more things. We ought to look, based, based on the idea that we are a family, that reality, we ought to look young, middle-aged, old. It's going to take time, but that's what a family is. A family isn't just a bunch of one sort of people, old or young. It's a mix. We ought to look white, Hispanic, Indian, Middle Eastern, Far Eastern. Why those? Because that's kind of what this area looks like. This side of Westheimer and that side of Westheimer. As we expand out the Galleria, it's going to take time. But we ought to begin to look like this as a family. But you might object, families don't look multiracial. Well, adopted families do. And we're adopted. Every single one of us. Every single one of us. Um, Okay, I'm going to end with that. Why don't you pray with me? Father, thank you for being our Father, for calling us into life, which is being known by you and being loved by you and loving you and loving others in return, even those outside of our family. That's what you call us to. Why we're here because you loved us and we were outside of your family and you brought us in to tell people about the beloved Jesus who came for us to draw us in to life itself, into your family with all the privileges thereunto that Christ has. What a privilege. I pray that it would sink deep into our own hearts and as it does, it would affect this family and this family would grow as people move from slaves to sons by trusting in Christ Jesus. Um, Jesus, thank you. We love you. Amen.